Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Compiler, here with your hosts Maddie and Serby. For today's episode, we thought we'd talk about what's on the top of everyone's mind nowadays, the election. With the stakes greater in 2020 than ever before and the circumstances unique from any other past election, it's really got us thinking, what comes to play when it comes to election integrity? We're so lucky today to have Brandy Naneki here to discuss with us just exactly that for today's episode. Brandy is the founding director at the Citrus Policy Lab at UC Berkeley, where she supports interdisciplinary tech policy research and engagement. She's a tech and human rights fellow at the Carr Center for Human Rights Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. We've had the opportunity to read several of Brandy's papers and her policy research on deep fakes and computational propaganda, and and are so excited to have her on our show today. Thanks so much, Brandy, for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. As an opening question, how are you feeling about this year's election? And what are some of your fears with everything that's kind of happened up until this point? And how do you see or foresee the next few election, next few weeks of this election playing out? Yeah, I'm glad that you've brought this up. Um, at the Citrus Policy Lab, we research computational propaganda. Uh, so that's the use of AI and automation to influence public opinion on social media. And for the past you know, couple of years, we've been studying how uh, certain actors will try to manipulate uh, social media as a means to polarize voters before the election. And, you know, there's been quite a bit of research on the effects of bots or, you know, other foreign um, intervention efforts into the election in 2016. And, you know, while by and large, there's some research showing that foreign interference in the election has been down a bit in the 2020 presidential election. Um, I'd, I'd like to caution, though, that those activities are still very much prevalent on social media. And I'd also like to point out that while we tend to focus on foreign intervention, we must also consider domestic efforts uh, to influence the election. So I'd like to talk a little bit about some of the research that we've done in this space. Um, So 2018 uh, midterm elections, we looked at the role of Twitter bots in spreading disinformation, harassment, and uh, political divisiveness targeting women's reproductive rights issues. Um, Because, of course, uh, women's reproductive rights is a very polarizing issue between Democrats and Republicans. And we've seen from previous research that nefarious actors really try to target those uh, contentious political debates because it's a way to really deepen the chasm uh, between the parties and really kind of continue to force voters into their own camps um, rather than considering alternative viewpoints. Yeah, I think that the example of Twitter is a really great comparison to make uh, with the election as well. And um, this topic of election integrity in general is a major buzzword that really first came into play during the 2016 election. Um, And I guess as a follow-up question, I'm curious how you would compare where we are now in terms of our knowledge about bots, deepfakes, and election integrity uh, as compared to with the 2016 presidential election? Yeah, great question. So I think obviously we have a lot more knowledge of the different tactics that are employed on social media to try to influence uh, people's um, understanding of issues and to polarize voters. And with that knowledge, we've been able to implement new tools that can monitor and identify for these tactics 
And, you know, sometimes the use of machine learning tools to be able to automatically remove that content or kind of downforce it in the recommender system so that it doesn't, you know, uh, become perpetuated in the recommender system and appear in a lot more people's feeds and get that viral nature that then, you know, leads to some negative impacts. So I think, you know, first we are more aware of what's happening, uh, you know, and I think with that greater awareness, we're able to conduct more research that provides more transparency. It's been great to actually see the the field of research grow over the past couple of years. And I'm excited that the field is growing. Of course, I'm also a bit heartbroken that this is happening. Um, but I think with, with more research, we're able to identify these tactics and appropriate mechanisms to mitigate. And I think as we prepare you know, the 2020 election here just around the corner in early November, we are at a much better point than we were um, before the 2016 um, election. So I think we're in a better position than we were, but there's still a lot of research that needs to be done. I would like to raise an issue with the ability to conduct research on platforms that often isn't brought up, but is it, you know, very critical to the ability for us to conduct research. And that is a trend of social media platforms to increasingly restrict the uh, data that we can gain access to through their application programming interfaces or APIs, which that is primarily how academic researchers and journalists will be able to pull data from uh, a social media website. So Facebook has one, Twitter has one. And those platforms in response to nascent data privacy legislation like the European Union's General Data Protection Regulation and the California Consumer Privacy Act, in an effort to protect personally identifiable information, this is often called PII, so you might hear that acronym, to protect that information, the platforms are saying, you know what, we're not actually going to give out as much data as we used to through the API. But to me, this is extremely problematic because if we think about the 2016 presidential election and the effect that social media platforms had on that election, if we didn't have independent third-party research, we would not know what was happening on those platforms. So my greatest fear is that while it's important to protect PII, personally identifiable information, if we have this overbroad, um, like, over-encompassing restriction on what is and is not considered PII, and those platforms start to restrict more of that data access, we will not know the effect of these platforms during the elections, which is extremely problematic. So I'd like to raise that as a very important issue. And we've been working at the Citrus Policy Lab to try to address that issue. Uh, we've established something called the Public Interest Research Alliance, or PIRA, it's a non-binding, so it means uh, those entities that are part of it, which include academic institutions, nonprofit, um, and industry, and government stakeholders. It's non-binding. They don't have to implement the recommendations that come out of PIRA, but it's a great way for them to come together to discuss appropriate strategies. Uh, so I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done to better ensure that while we're trying to protect uh, 
people's data on these platforms that we don't also inadvertently block the ability for independent third-party journalists and academics to be able to access data that is critical for this accountability and transparency. Oh yeah, absolutely. That's a really, really great point. And I think given some of the restrictions that you've been facing more recently, like you mentioned, the different laws that have come up around these APIs and around PII, um, how are you actually picking up on the patterns that you're seeing in this election? Are you seeing a lot of those continued patterns from the 2016, 2018 elections uh, playing out in the 2020 election? Are you able to conduct the same kind of research properly now, um, despite the kind of rules that have been placed upon you guys in terms of finding or, you know, pulling in the right data mm-hmm. with the APIs. Yeah, getting the, the right data. So actually, we haven't pulled data um, within the last year um, for studying the 2020 election. The last data that we pulled was from October 2018, uh, where we pulled data um, on Twitter using hashtags related to immigration to look at the prevalence of Twitter bots and spreading disinformation, harassment, and perpetuating political divisiveness around immigration as a means to influence voting behavior in the 2018 U.S. midterm elections. And at that time, you know, we were able to to gain enough public, you know, the data that was usually public that that is necessary. But there are, I think, other data points that would be extremely valuable for our research. Um, so. If, For example, in my research, I am able to run my Twitter handles through different um, tools to identify whether or not, based off of various factors in that tool uh, or in that model, whether or not that account is a bot or not. So according to that model, which does have false positive and false negative errors, there's some likelihood that the account is exhibiting, quote, bot-like behavior. Now, the one thing that I cannot do is tell you who created that bot and who might be behind those bots and their creation. So that's where I see we need more collaboration between industry and academia to be able to inform our research. There is, you know, just deep uh, passion within academia to research this issue. And so I I just implore the private sector to continue those partnerships with academics to conduct this research. And there have been some really great partnerships that have been formed. For example, the Social Science One project, um, which is a partnership with Facebook and Social Science One and the Social Science Research Council that um, you know solicited research ideas from academics you know domestically nationally and internationally to do research and that also supported the sharing of data and i think those types of partnerships are really important and we need to make sure that they they are supported and continued um, but i also caution that that is happening right now because of the goodwill of those companies there's no federal or state mandate that requires that platforms open up their data to be shared with academics for research, even though I believe that perhaps it, it should be a requirement, given that we know platforms have had this direct effect on our society. 
Yeah, that that totally makes sense. And since we're kind of on this topic of discussing legislation and regulation, I think it's a really interesting point you brought up about perhaps requiring social media platforms to be sharing information um, with third party researchers. Um, And so I guess I just wanted to ask if you could kind of sum up for our listeners, what is the current state of legislation in terms of the spread of misinformation online with regards to deep fakes and bots and how if at all, is it aiding in upkeeping election integrity in 2020? Yeah, great question. So there's been a lot of effort, um, particularly at the federal level. We've seen quite a few bills being introduced to try to stop the spread of mis and disinformation, which for our listeners, I'd like to explain the difference between mis and disinformation quickly because those terms are often used interchangeably, but they are different. So misinformation essentially is the unconscious spreading of false information. You know, let's say you come across something um, that's false information and you respread it, but you're not doing it with uh, malicious intent. That's more you're spreading misinformation. Now, disinformation, on the other hand, is when you are intentionally spreading false information with the intent to deceive or for other nefarious purposes. Um, So... Yeah, legislation we've seen proposed in those those areas, not a lot of it has moved forward. A lot is introduced, not a lot is actually moved forward. But one area where we have seen movement is around deep fakes and the stopping of deep fakes before an election. So deep fakes, um, that's the use of AI to create an image, a video, or audio that makes someone appear to be saying or doing something that they did not actually do. So in California, we have the anti-deepfake law, which was passed in 2019. And that law applies only to deepfake content that is spread with actual malice within 60 days of the election. Um, So there are obviously, you know, there's some unpacking that needs to happen there, right? What does actual malice mean? And I raise four issues um, with the, the deepfake law. The first one is around timing. So in California, the anti-deepfake law only applies to malicious content that's spread within 60 days of an election. So we could we could imagine uh, a deepfake video going viral 61 days before an election, and that video is still available because it's outside of the purview of the law. Uh, we also, I think, have an issue with misplaced responsibility in the law. So in the law as it stands right now, uh, and to me, this is one of the greatest flaws in the law, an entity that develops a malicious deepfake is required to identify it as such. So that's like a con man coming up to you and say, hey, before I swindle you, I just want to let you know that I'm going to con you right now. They're not going to do that, right? Um, I think the other is around uh, within misplaced responsibility that it really puts the onus on the, you know, users of social media to flag that content and identify it. And it places a lack of responsibility on the platforms to identify that content. And that really derives from some, some protections under Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. So Section 230 provides platforms with a liability safeguard against being sued for harmful user-generated content, not just deepfakes, any uh, harmful user-generated content. 
and they are especially uh, given this exemption if they are acting in good faith to remove the content. And this was established um, because there was a fear that if the platforms had to overly police their platforms, they their content, they wouldn't be able to grow to where they are today. And then quickly, the two other big issues I see with the California anti-deepfake law is the burden of proof. Um, like I alluded to earlier, how do you prove actual malice? Um, how do you prove it's not just a parody of someone? And then the final one is an what I call inadequate remedy. So even if a deep a malicious uh, deep fake is identified before the election, it's within the 60 day window, they flag it, they, they catch it. Well, so what? At that point, the damage might have already been done. How do we ensure that the people who have come across that content are able to be informed that it was in fact a malicious deep fake? So I think those are the, the big issues. Also in regard to bots in the state of California, there is the bot bill um, that was passed and that requires any entity that is using a bot for a commercial transaction or to uh, communicate or influence uh, elections or a vote in an election, they must identify that it is a bot. So that provides more transparency. Mm -hmm. It sounds like you know, with the anti-deep fake law in California, it's kind of just a start to a lot of the legislation that's happening. And that itself is clearly posing a lot of issues. It's not completely comprehensive. And I think that that brings up a larger issue, right? Is it the tech company's responsibility to, you know, maybe pair with academics, to pair with government entities to create really um, thorough laws to ensure that all of the people who are voting, the voters are properly protected. The people who are making decisions are protected. Um, I think, you know, that that becomes a really big question. What would you say is your opinion on this? Do the tech companies have some sort of obligation, moral obligation to assist in uh, managing deep fakes and managing a lot of what's coming up on their platforms? Yes, absolutely. I think that the platforms have a moral responsibility to act. Mm -hmm. I think the moment at which our public sphere has essentially become owned by the private sector, at that point, the private sector has taken on sort of a quasi-governmental role. Uh, and I think because of that responsibility, there is needed um, oversight over those companies and what they're doing. Mm -hmm. It's it's no longer appropriate, I think, for the private sector to stand and say, okay, and I'm gonna caveat this. I, I do think that the private sector is taking really great initiatives to try to stop this problem. And I don't wanna say that, you know, that they haven't done that. I think they, in many instances, they are trying their best, but I, I do think more needs to be done and more can be done if we support that necessary collaboration and that the platforms in some instances you know actually a lot more can be done and they might not be doing as much as they should be so i think mandating more of this oversight and transparency i think transparency is critical in in what they're doing we often see announcements from Facebook and Twitter that X hundred thousand accounts have been removed. Well, why were they removed? What factors helped you identify that those were malicious accounts? 
that helps the research. Why not share that information? So I think that there needs to be more responsibility placed on the platforms to share share information, partner with academic institutions, other private sector entities to develop perhaps some um, automated like machine learning models that will be able to identify and remove a certain content. Yeah, and you know, like you were saying about transparency, I think that we've kind of come to a place where the public mostly believes that maybe these platforms aren't capable of that responsibility and hence government oversight is needed, third party researchers are needed. And so kind of shifting a little bit to now talk about um, you know, AI's potential for positive because obviously <laughs> nobody would really be working on this or researching this if we didn't think that there was potential for positive there. How can we make sure that AI systems are built in a way that kind of upholds these principles of morality and transparency? And how do you kind of see the juxtaposition of this positive potential of AI compared to the negative effects that have already been publicized um, by the media, uh, specifically talking about algorithmic bias and the election that we were dis just discussing mm -hmm. and realistically what you think the path ahead looks like? And, um, you know, can we legislate at a rate that is effective when considering how fast technological innovation moves? Yeah, so I'll dig into the first part of the question and then we can talk about the pace of legislation. Um, obviously, we're trying to develop AI-enabled tools because we see the benefit, right? They can create greater efficiency, greater effectiveness, greater equity. So I think, you know, of course, those the, the technology itself can promote these beneficial gains. And we're also seeing uh, a push among government, among industry, um, also within academia to develop guiding principles for the ethical development of AI. And I think starting in, you know, like mid 2019, we started to see this, this move to try to operationalize ethical AI principles, which I should note, there's over, I think 150 sets of ethical AI principles out there. And we don't, we probably don't need another set of ethical AI principles. I and mean, we've pretty much saturated the principles. But what we do need are strategies on how to operationalize them. So, for example, if we have an ethical AI principle that says machine learning tools that will, uh, you know, have a high likelihood of affecting somebody's civil rights should be transparent. Okay, so what does transparent mean? What does transparent mean in the context of the tool that you're building and in the application domain that you're building it in? So starting to tease out, okay, how do we move now? How do we move the, the needle from principles to sound practices? Um, and I, I think it's promising. We're seeing a lot of work being done in that space within industry, with working groups being set up um, within companies. And then also we're seeing a lot of this work within academia. Um, so the second part of your question around the pace of legislation, can it keep up with innovation? I think in, in many instances, while in the short term, we might think oh, legislation moves so slow in these harms that we're seeing that could have been mitigated if we had legislation. I'd say that oftentimes that's true, but if we implement ill-conceived legislation and don't think about the negative spillover effects, that will be much more detrimental and harder to course correct. So I think in many ways, we're actually pretty lucky that we have 
a little bit more of a slow moving uh, legislation. And, and I think that's actually been built in on purpose uh, to make sure that when we make a decision, we've made a decision in the right path and we've considered all of those negative externalities and built in um, verbiage and, and, you know, other things to make sure that we're mitigating some of those potential harms that were identified. So I think, yeah, we're okay. We're gonna, we're, there's a lot of, um, a lot of movement in this space. I also think companies, because they are more agile than government, a lot of the companies themselves are taking it upon themselves to actually implement their own policy strategies. And so, for example, we've seen this with the ban on development of facial recognition systems, like where we saw Microsoft come out and say, you know, we don't think that the technology is market ready right now. It's been shown to be biased against communities of color and, and also hold a gender bias. So we're not going to implement these projects at this time until the technology gets stronger. That's the industry actually stepping up and, and saying, okay, we need to take a break on this and do some self-governance and stop. So I think it's promising that we're seeing companies do this. And I think that companies are identifying that consumers appreciate when a company is acting ethically. And for them, that can mean more customers, right? If you're a company that is consistently implementing or building out tools that are infringing on people's civil and political rights, People may quote, you know, vote with their feet and take their their um, take their services, you know, elsewhere. They'll go somewhere else rather than going with that company. So I think that that being an ethical company can be a market advantage. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, it's interesting because the election has been has been around obviously for hundreds of years, the United States, and as a concept for you know centuries. But um, these tech companies are relatively young compared to the election and their importance and their role and um, how they're affecting the election. All of that is really new. And it's um, a lot of it is undiscovered. And, you know, thanks to researchers like yourself, we're actually able to understand a lot more about the effects of the technology of the social media on um, the way that people are voting and on the outcome of the election, how it's directly impacting the results um, that, you know, we're going to see in a couple weeks. And I think, you know, we're really thankful that we have researchers like you, third party researchers who come in with absolutely no bias and are really just kind of trying to get to the root of the problem and are trying to uncover, uh, you know, how we can mitigate a lot of these problems and looking towards that positive um, solution towards utilizing this AI, towards utilizing um, a lot of the technology. So, you know, really, we, we're so thankful that you came on here today uh, for chatting with us about election integrity and the importance of even creating policy in order to uphold the uh, integrity of this upcoming election. So thank you so much. It was my pleasure joining you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. Um, we really appreciate you taking the time to share your research with us. And I think that what you were mentioning earlier about um, you know, how can we move from good principles to sound practice? That's kind of a great parting thought to end on, I believe. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to another episode of Compile Her. Make sure to check out the rest of our season two on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And follow us on Instagram at Compile Her. 
And of course, remember to vote this election season.